difficult, but it can be done on, on pieces of land, and there are ranchers all over the country doing it. Bison's native rangeland literally went from Alaska down past Mexico City and from, you know, east coast to west coast. They are really well suited to this land, and, and yeah, they're roaming around, eating the grass, leaving deposits. One of the things they did when they wallow, when they roll in the dirt, they're actually pick, they pick up grass seeds and then spread them to other areas. With that alone, they're helping move and, and keep the prairies and, and grasses beautiful. As we try and force nature to do things, whether it be, you know, cattle or, or growing grass, anytime you're working against the, the natural flow of things, it's difficult. The more natural it is, the easier it is because you don't, you're not fighting things, you're working with them, you're working within the system. That's personally why I believe bison are just such a, a useful animal in this, in this time. This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. Today, we have Ron Miskin on the line. Ron, how's it going? Doing great. Thank you for having me here. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, Ron and I connected in person, actually, back in January, I believe, at the National Bison Association Winter Conference, which was really cool experience. And yeah, met a lot of great folks there. And then we kind of stayed in touch on Twitter he is in the buffalo wool business as well as a homesteader, and he's just got back from Alaska. So maybe we talk about that a little bit. You're spending your, your summers up in Alaska every summer for many years, correct? Yeah, this has been 14 years, um, and it's been awesome. Um, it's the most beautiful place in the world, and you know, if you like to fish, you cannot beat it. So. It works good for us. There's a starting to burgeon bison industry going on up there. There's more mm. ranchers than I've ever seen. Um, and that's exciting. But for us, mostly, it's it's selling socks. So is that what drew you up there originally was the, the market? Or you just wanted to go there to fish for the summer? And <laughs> kind of it happened to be a good place to sell the, the wool products. Well, originally I got invited up to a sportsman show up in Wasilla by this really neat guy named Tony Ross, who's written a couple of really cool books on hunting. I wanted to go meet Tony, so I went up, did the show. It was in a March, and not a lot of fun in March. I mean, ice fishing is bad then, which, you know, <laughs> and the rest of the fishing is even worse, because there's just nothing running. But went up in March, sold a bunch of socks, made some just amazing friends, and that's kind of what's kept us going back is the people we have met you know so many interesting folks from one one of our favorite groups is a lot of dog sled mushers and that's just a really fascinating fascinating sport with some cool people but we found that alaska is just a great market for our product people understand how well things need to work and our stuff kind of kind of works there yeah, I mean, it makes sense for sure that the you could probably sell more wool socks in Alaska than Texas, I'd imagine, just because the, the temperatures and the people are, you know, aware and open to that. So it, that, it's a good place, especially in, in August. And that's what we've done for the last 14 years is just get out of Texas in August and go see where 
fall starts, and I like standing in rivers. So that's the fun part. Is the last is that like fly fishing, and is that like the best in the in the U.S. You think overall? Absolutely, absolutely. it's the best in the world. And fly fishing is great. And then there's this really interesting method when the when the salmon are running and they're not really feeding called flossing which you kind of do with a fly or a hook just with a little bit of yarn tied to it but basically you're you're trying to snag them in the mouth and that's an interesting way to fish so but it worked are you uh, yeah that's interesting because actually we were we were at green river um on the green river and the salmon the kokanee salmon the landlocked salmon were actually spawning they'd swam all the way upstream and someone was telling me that you you don't really want to eat the salmon that are kind of swimming upstream and spawning because they're basically like zombified by the time they make it all the way up and they're just gonna yeah, lay their eggs and, and die. They're they're is that true? Yeah, that is very true. When the, by the time they're spawned out, you really don't want to eat them. But when they're coming in from the ocean and starting to head up the rivers, that's not a bad time to catch a few fish. And are you eating a good amount of these fish or none or some or what's oh, your stance? No, we um we pretty much harvest all of our own protein, whether it be bison, beef, turkey, pig, chicken, and fish. We provide all of our own stuff harvested from nature. Yeah, that's badass. And I think that's the right mindset too, is like, I, I think it's kind of weird that fishing has become, well, it's also a byproduct of the quality of the waterways. And maybe that's also why, you know, going to Alaska is, is really nice. You're getting, you know, less runoff and, and things like that. So you can actually feel confident about eating the fish. Um, but yeah, to me, it's quite strange that most of the, you know, fishing, sportsmen out there are are not have any they have no desire to eat what they catch and you know, i talk about with with my friend quite a bit that you know there's obviously some impact just releasing a fish after you catch it like many times on the fish's health and you might as well eat it or you know that's kind of a controversial opinion probably but i, I think when you're into this hunting harvesting self-sovereignty mindset it's like yeah this is the reason why fishing exists in the first place was to provide us a food source uh, oh, absolutely and we have a very strong opinion on waste okay don't harvest yes. anything that you're not going to use every part of and that's really led into our business i mean what we do is basically a byproduct of the bison meat industry people raise bison for meat they're delicious it's great for you you know very clean quality meat but what was happening is they were using some of the leather, but burning the hair off to tan the hides. So instead of wasting it, we started harvesting the hair um, and processing it into yarn and turning it into socks and stuff. So with anything that you harvest, I mean, we have sort of an obligation to be good conservator of our, our environment and don't take more than you need and don't, you know, don't waste. That's the biggest thing. There is plenty out there. Just gotta be careful with it. Yeah, and I think that's the the right mindset, the right attitude. Because yeah, we've gotten to this this weird state where you know it's like just been neglected for for a long time. Whether it's you know the organ meats or or the hides and the byproducts of you know beef or or something like bison, of course. And then yeah, the fish are just taken for granted. Oh, they're not really 
you know, it's different. People compare a fish to like a, a cow and they have a different like feeling about it for some reason, but it's the same principle. And you want to make sure yet, yeah, like you said, you're doing right by the environment because it is a, you know, a treasure, um, a very blessed thing that you can go out and fish or hunt in these beautiful areas. So I think that's important, but yeah, maybe I want to maybe get into the, the wool space a little bit. Did that, were you working with a bunch of bison ranches or like, how did you get introduced to the bison industry and then come up with this idea, I guess that, Hey, there's a byproduct. Maybe we can make a business out of this. All right. Um, am I back? Sorry. I had it offline. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I did not come up with the idea and I'm not going to take any credit for it at all. Um, I got into the bison industry through my father. When we moved to Texas, dad, first thing he did was bought a small ranch and then started playing with all sorts of animals. We have raised everything from pot-bellied pigs to miniature horses, pheasant, quail, and then bison showed up. And that's what started our family in the bison industry, and we've been doing it now 40-plus years. But the wool was originally... The Native Americans have, have understood the benefits of bison fiber for a long time. I mean, the bison was basically the Walmart of the plains. Use every part, and it can provide shelter, food, and clothing. Um, the more modern version of it was back in the 1800s, the original Buffalo Wool Company was started by the Hudson Bay Company, 1871 in Red River, Manitoba. They started when we were basically killing all the bison. They were shipping the hides to England and turning them into women's hosiery in the late 1800s. Company didn't last long. Basically, we killed all the, the animals, and so it kind of went by the wayside. Uh, then as there's been a little bit more resurgence in the bison industry, there's more fiber available. So we kind of rediscovered and not really discovered. But looking now that there is enough to be processed commercially, because that's one of the been the biggest hurdle is having enough fiber to go through the, the commercial processing and turn it into something useful. But we're getting there and it's it's been growing. I've been doing this now since 2005. And every year we've had an increase in our ability to produce and an increase in our harvest. So that, I guess that's a testament to the increase in bison that are being ranched in general, right? And oh. I've talked, talked to Cody, Cody Spencer, which I think maybe you knew he was at the conference as well. I'm friends with him. And he's saying that there's kind of like this rise in, you know, bison ranching up until like the early 2000s. But really, it's it's kind of been like flattish since I thought it was more so just kind of like straight up into the right. But I guess it ebbs and flows. So I'm, I'm curious on, on your thoughts there. And are you seeing this outlook? in the future that, you know, the bison industry is going to just continue to grow um, significantly? I, personally, I believe so. And I'm, I'm betting on it in a big way. I mean, pretty much my entire life is bet on bison. We've watched it grow from, from the early 2000s. When I started doing this, meat was, bison meat was um, starting to gain acceptance. And it was starting to get a little bit of demand. I think the demand today is is tenfold what it was in 2005. And I think that the commercial acceptance has been a lot greater. 
when we first started doing this, you know, I'd, I'd be out trying to say, here, have you ever touched bison fiber before? And people would make comments about, aren't they endangered? Or, you know, how can you be, be doing this with those, you know, great animals? And then trying to explain where the, the reason that bison are, have made such a great comeback is because they are commercially viable. People enjoy eating them. And because of that, people enjoy raising them. I've watched the number of bison ranches and the amount of bison available just just spike continuously. Um, and I don't I don't see any any real change in that. I think more and more people are, are understanding how to get meat to market because that's the biggest challenge. So yeah, the marketing aspect is is always tough, and especially when you have a a premium product and which bison is, and then also, you know, you might be spending more on infrastructure, or need more land, or you know, things. There's not as easy of a copy paste blueprint to maybe cattle um, raising Angus or something like that. But maybe you can shed some light on on what you've kind of experience and learned raising bison yourself or, or working with ranches, working on ranches. Um, what are the trade-offs, the pros, the cons compared to raising cattle? That's, that's a really good question. And in some ways that they're a lot easier to raise in some ways they're much more difficult. Um, infrastructure, like you mentioned, is probably the biggest hurdle to getting into raising bison. You know, ha having a piece of land is wonderful, but, keeping them on that land is is crucial so making sure you have good fences making sure you have adequate resources for them um bison need friends they are a herd animal you can't have one they will go find friends and tear down whatever it is in the process so having a, a reasonable size herd having water grass and they do like to roam that's that is a very real thing so having a place for them to go and feel like they can move as a herd is has been a big thing. You can't just basically put them in a pen and leave them. They'll get bored. Um, as far as the easier side, things like, uh, you know, medications. Bison aren't requiring the hormones, antibiotics, and steroids that are used in a lot of cat commercial cattle processing. So you don't have to do that. Uh, having Helping them birth, ca birth calves, that's not something you have to do with bison. They're very good at that. They can do it all on their own. So overall, the, the one big thing I've learned is that the more ranchers that are out there, the more they're willing to, to help educate, train, and mentor new ranchers. So as we get more, we're going to get more. And I think that's just going to kind of snowball as we go. Hey, friend. Thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Yeah, and, and I think it's interesting too, just restoring the, the native large ruminant to its homeland. And you know, something that's always brought up is just their resilience. And you're talking about down in Texas and then up in Alaska, like, you know, one species can be in the heat of Texas and you know, the frigid cold of, of Alaska. And I think that's underrated, right? And, and that's probably one of the other main benefits. Um, but, you know, what, what does it look like if we had 50% less cattle and that gap, that hole was filled with 
with bison? You know, what does that do to our ecosystems? What does that do to like our, our land um, and, and replenishing that? Because obviously that's a huge concern right now. And yeah, it's something I think about. And will there be more incentive? Like right now, I forget the numbers, but you know, it's like what, 200,000 or something bison are being ranched and like 150,000 cattle are slaughtered a day. So it's like, it's growing, but it's still such a small fraction. It is very small. The, the biggest difference in bison and cattle is the density that you can raise. And then you can pack cattle into a feedlot, stuff them full of grain and Skittles and, and process meat <laughs> in 18 to 24 months. Bison are going to take longer. They're going to take more grass. And it, it's not as a dense a way to raise protein. So it is always going to be at a premium. Uh, ranchers are going to understand that it's going to take more resources to get them to market. But I think overall, the consumer is going to push that demand. You mentioned talking about the, the land and the regenerative aspects of it. That's re really why more ranchers will move towards bison, I believe. We watched Rome Ranch down just outside of, of Austin, Texas, and um, take a piece of land, 500 acres. It had just been overworked, overfarmed, and was just De totally depleted of any nutrients in the soil. They put bison on the land and a couple of chick big chicken tractors, like 200 chickens per tractor, totally automated that open. And that was, I think, I think they started seven or eight years ago. And we went down when they first moved animals to it and saw what it looked like. And I was just down there in June, and it's glorious. The recovery that the land has made, the amount of biodiversity that's back, the the plant life, just the, the bugs, the, all of it. The soil is alive now. And that's really due to putting large ungulates that can process the above-ground carbon and grass and turn it back into nutrients and put it back into the soil. That's where it comes from. Yeah, and yeah, if, if you're not familiar, Rome Ranch is kind of like the marketing front of a force of nature, and, and they've done really great stuff in in Texas, and it just goes to show that we can restore ecosystems, but they're, they're also doing, you know, rotational grazing, adaptive grazing practices, which is important um, as well, but, you know, bison probably are just better suited to doing this because this is their native land, this is their native environment. And yeah, it's it's really interesting to think about how it would have happened uh, 150 to 200 plus years ago. These massive herds just coming through the Great Plains, like not leaving a single blade of grass unturned, but then not coming back for maybe a year, two years, three years, um, and giving all that rest period and all that restoration, um, inspiring that restoration. So to me, it's always like, oh, wow, this is so cool. Like, how could we do this on like a larger scale? You know, it'd be awesome if there was a co-op, let's say Rome Ranch is like a starting place. And then there's, you know, a tract of like hundreds of miles or something between public land and other ranches who are on board. And then you could have an actual path for a bison herd to, to really roam and then tightly pack it and manage that herd as they're roaming, kind of like a cattle drive would have been but with bison and you know really working to restore that that land so i don't know <laughs> that's an idea i mean i don't know how feasible it is in the modern age with yeah know, exactly highways, highways. So, yeah, so it, it's difficult but it can be done on, on pieces of land and there are ranchers all over the country doing it 
you, you mentioned talking about the, the diversity from, you know, Texas to Alaska. Bison's native rangeland literally went from Alaska down past Mexico City and from, you know, mm-hmm. east coast to west coast. They are really well suited to this land. And, and yeah, they're roaming around and eating the grass, leaving deposits. And one of the things that I, you know, learned not you know a while ago was one of the things they did when they wallow, when they roll in the dirt, they're actually picking, they pick up grass seeds and then spread them to other areas. So with that alone, they're helping move and, and keep the prairies and, and grasses beautiful. They're, their fiber when they would shed it out on the plains when when they started um when when they would roam the plains and do things they would spread grass seed and then the bird the native ground birds would use their their fiber for nesting material they just were basically a a whole biodiversity factory in themselves and if anyone gets a chance we're working on a movie currently about this Mm. called native prodigies of an icon the trailer and all the the vlogs of it in process are available on YouTube under Yanasa TV. And if you want to see some more about bike branches all over, it's a, that's a phenomenal way to, to actually see that. Oh, wow. That's really cool. We'll have to link that. That's something you're involved in and kind of what, what's the inspiration behind this? Um, well, it, it's telling the story of the the comeback, basically the greatest comeback in history from the point of view of the people who are actually making it happen, not from a conservation government type situation, but because of ranchers all across the country, decentralized, if you will, who who have put effort, time, and their money and labor into helping bring back bison and showing the the story. So it's, it's going to be the first time that the, the bison comeback has actually been told from a producer's point of view. That's really cool. I'm excited to check that out. Wow. When's that supposed to come out uh, fully? It'll, the, and that's, that's a really good question because <laughs> going into the project, you know, uh, Charlie and Shauna Rankin, who are Yanasa TV, originally intended it to be a full-length documentary type two-hour movie kind of thing. The only problem is, is that the deeper you get into the story, you real, the more of the story that you realize. They now have 60 hours of vlogs with 60 different ranches. There's no way to turn that into a two-hour movie. There's just too much story. So I don't know what the final fo- format's going to look like. Um, but it should... Gotcha. The plan, yeah, the plans come out next year, and, and it's just... I know it's going to be amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm wow. I'm really excited to check that out. Because, yeah, there is so much that goes into it, and... There's so much uh, effort. There's so much variety, and that's something I want to get into a little bit. Is in Alaska, you know, what is it like raising bison where you know it's freezing cold and there's snow maybe more than half the year? Um, is that an issue? Do they have to do anything additional with feed? I know they're really good at breaking through snow and getting to forage. Do they just need more land? Uh, I'm curious on how that looks. Uh, raising bison um, yeah, in Alaska. The more land situation. I mean, their heads are a giant snowplow. They don't. They don't really worry about that. But the grass has got to be under that snow for them to eat. Otherwise, you're supplementing with hay and things like that, which means you need to grow the grass in the summer. When you have a summer that is maybe six weeks long, you better get some grass growing. Uh, yeah, there's there are definitely challenges in it. But they were there before we were there, so the the food is out there. They just got to get to it. 
Got it. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense to me. And I thought about that too. Obviously um, I'm working with the bison ranch here in Wyoming and yeah, Wyoming winters are nothing short of harsh either, but maybe not as long as, not as long as uh, Alaska. So it's, it's really fascinating. And again, it goes back to just they're sustainable by their own means. And that's because they're designed, they evolved for this environment, you know, they're the only, well, large room and a large animal that made it past the, the last ice age. And they are designed to be able to survive and thrive in these extreme environments. Whereas cattle, you'll have to, you know, grow hay and then bring it in transport. Like, it's just like a very inefficient process. And, and what Cody talked about last time is just how damaging like growing hay is for, for land. Like just if that's all you're growing, you know, it's a monocrop at the end of the day, which we know is, is terrible for the soil health. So if we could have less people, you know, raising cattle that need supplemental hay and supplemental alfalfa and all this, then we have bison we can be more effective, more efficient in restoring land. And that's something I didn't really make that connection until, until recently because these, the prices as well for everything has, has gone up tremendously to supplement that stuff. Exactly. And, and, you know, as, as we have, as we try and force nature to do things, whether it be, you know, cattle or, or growing grass, you know, anytime you're working against, the, the natural flow of things, it's difficult. So we, the more natural it is, the easier it is because you don't, you're not fighting things, you're working with them and you're working within the system. Um, that's personally why I believe bison are just such a, a useful animal in this, in this time. If we're going to try and get our lands back healthy again, all this monocrop agriculture has just depleted soils. And if we don't put inputs back into it in a usable form, you know, then we're just, literally spraying chemicals on there to try and, and stimulate growth and artificial fertilizers and things like that. Putting those back in this doesn't generate good quality grass, doesn't generate good quality food in the long run. We're just poisoning ourselves slowly. Yeah, it's so bad. And and we talk about that a lot on this show for sure. And it's really incredible because it should be you know, it should be incentivized, but because all the incentives are, are stacked in the opposite direction with, you know, these inputs, these chemical inputs, high input, high output style, um, the subsidies behind like grains, um, that's why, you know, like feedlot and of course, just pure yield, uh, feedlot beef is, is so cheap. Um, but after a while, it's just like unsustainable. So I'm just curious. I've noticed that for some reason, people are like, there's a better perception of bison in the common sphere compared to beef. So like if you're selling beef or you're eating a lot of beef, someone might just say, oh, that's bad for the environment or something like that. But bison, for some reason, they think, oh, that's great or that's good or bison's healthier. And you can get into the nuances of that, of course. And we're talking about how they are probably better. But if it's it's weirdly like a po more way more positive connotation, which is a good thing. So I'm curious, are there any incentive programs or is there a push from, you know, the government or, or state legislation to incentivize more producers to raise bison versus cattle or not really? That's not really a thing. You know, short answer is I'm going to say not really. 
Okay. Now, the National Bison Association is an absolutely phenomenal organization who has done more for bison ranchers than you know anything. And they've done they've made some great strides both legislatively and practically. So there there have been some benefits. There are now some programs using trying to use more bison meat in school districts and uh, putting bison back on native reservations. And I think those those incentives are wonderful. Um, from a you know small producer point of view, though, it's really difficult to get an animal from your pasture processed and you know into the market, and that's that's where the disincentives come from. So it, there's a balance, and I, I don't know if it's a balance or not, but that's what I've seen is it's it's very difficult to get an animal inspected. There's weird rules on on bison. I can't export bison socks to Canada without having to go through an APHIS inspection. Um, wow. That, yeah, you know, sheep don't typically have to do. Again, there's there's some weird legislation, and Jim at the National Bison Association is an absolutely amazing guy who's done a lot of great work and continues to do so. And I think that we will get this straightened out. I do think that in the future there will be more incentives for raising bison for all the reasons you just mentioned. They are better for the land. There is a ecological benefit to them versus feedlot cattle. The difficulty being, though, that there will never be anywhere near the level of production that there is in feedlot. Mm -hmm. So it's six of one, half dozen of the other. It ain't easy for any farmer, whether it's a bison rancher or a cattle farmer, but I think the bison farming is worth it. Yeah, and you mentioned a lot of good points too. Is this something I've ran into recently? Just processing, and I mean shipping across state lines, like the USDA and state classifications of bison. I mean, it's considered an exotic animal, so sometimes you get like a benefit from that, um, being able to get above some of these USDA rules. But then sometimes for the processing, yeah, people just don't want to touch it, and that could be a huge issue, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, by the time you get into what's called amenable species or non-amenable species, there's weird rules that you basically can't mix bison meat with other meats and sell, like, mm. a, you know, a bison pork sausage or anything like that. Bison's really lean, helps adding some fat to it to, to make other types of products. And, again, just just strange rules when it, when it comes to it. But, and truly, I, I don't even know them all. I, I am not a meat seller or producer. Yeah, I, yeah. Animals whole usually. Um, that's that's been more of our model. But we're we're working more towards getting getting smaller producers to get stuff to market, and that's that's been my major focus. Yeah, and and that makes sense too. So so getting into the wool, I guess is your selling point coming from all natural fibers like plastic stuff is bad for you or this will keep you warm or everything i guess maybe give the audience uh, a 30 second spiel on you know why why is bison wool fiber and maybe just all natural fibers whatever your products because i know some of the a lot of them contain a blend um of, with sheep wool why you know why is this such a great product well the reason I start out with usually is if you look at the environment that the animal lives in, whether it is high mountains or wide plains, you know, extreme heat or extreme cold, bison are adapted. And the reason that they're adapted is because of this fiber. 
they have this undercoat that we call it down. It's a secondary coat down close to their skin. It's a very short, very crimpy fiber. And I can probably have some examples of it around here. I'll show you Stacey's packing stuff up now. Um, it works. It keeps you dry. It, it's the only natural fiber that wicks moisture in its vapor state. So it'll, it'll pull water away from your feet, the sweat, before it can condense and, and cool you down. It also does that great when, when it's cold. It keeps your feet dry and doesn't allow the, the wet to, to transmit the cold. It's extremely insulating. The University, the, sorry, University of South Dakota has said that it's 12 times more insulating than sheep's wool. I don't wow. know that I, you know, and, and there's, there's so many factors that go into that. I, I can't say that that's actually true or not, but it is definitely more insulating and a fair bit. So um, we started originally just making yarn for hand knitting and really even before that, just providing fiber for people who spin their own yarn to, to make. And that was kind of how we got started. But as we've learned a little bit more, as we've learned the better uses of it, we've sort of advanced. And as we learned how to make things ourselves, I mean, I was sitting there knitting, hand knitting socks when we started and hand spinning yarn. But our business has evolved as, as our knowledge has grown. And part of the reason we go to Alaska and spend a lot of time there is because these people know what you need when it's cold or wet or whatever and so listening learning and taking back what we've picked up and going back there with the product we learn pretty quickly what works that's kind of been our big big model so so getting into that down layer so that's something sheep don't have or they do um, some sheep, Jacob sheep, have there. There are lots of of double coated animals. Um, the most common of which is is cashmere. Cashmere is the undercoat hair from a goat. Uh, not all goats have it, but but some breeds do. Wow, uh, I didn't even know that. <laughs> there, there's a lot of animals that have that secondary coat. A lot of dogs do, but it's that that very fine, very soft, crimpy little fiber that just works great at trapping dead air. So when you take that that crimpy little fiber and twist it into a yarn, it just makes air pockets. Air pockets are where you get the insulation, not necessarily the fiber itself. So mm. the more fine air pockets you have that are stable, the warmer your product is going to be. And Bison does that so far better than anything we've ever seen. And I've got a flat out challenge out there that there's just not a warmer sock on the planet. Actually, I'm going to grab my bison hide real quick. It's like right next to me. I want to show a visual here. <laughs> okay. I'll grab, I'm going to grab some of the down. I'm going to be ten, two seconds here. Sorry, more than an arm's length away. This is a bag of our spinning fiber. We still sell quite a bit of it. But that's the down fiber. Really soft, really short, and again, you can, when you twist it and make yarn out of it, because that's all yarn is, is it just made a bunch of air pockets there. So Sorry, I was on mute. But yeah, no, that, that makes sense. <laughs> I was just grabbing this because it was right next to me. And yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Actually, like... You know, I use this kind of like a blanket or, or an under cover. It's huge. It's like a big bowl hut. And it's so warm. Like it's if you sleep on top of this, I'm actually gonna try some like winter camping in my in my forerunner this this winter for ski trips. 
I think you can sleep on this in like 20, 30 degree weather and you'll be like totally warm, even with just like a light blanket on top. Um, yeah, it's, it's incredible. And I mean, it, should you be surprised? Like these animals can thrive at like absurdly low temperatures. We have friends have a ranch up in Delta Junction, Alaska, and their temperatures there can get down to negative 60, negative 70. Oh, I mean, that's just mind blowing. I can't comprehend that sort of no. lack. Of, I mean, that's um, that's something, and the the animals do well in it. They they, you know, they don't necessarily seek shelter, and they will, you know, go out and be just fine. So now we have a, you know, most of the mushers that are out there are wearing our socks out at sixty sixty below. That's that's cold, and it works. Um, and I agree. If you if you've used a bison hide as a sleeping bag, you will never go back. They're incredible. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating. And, and I've I've used your gloves. I, I love your gloves. And I'm curious as well. How, did you start making like hundred percent bison wool products, or and then start mixing with sheep wool because it's just easier to? There's not enough bison fiber to go around, or you think that's like a happy medium? I'm I'm curious there. Um, what's the the reason behind that or Being how many of your products? Well, when we started originally, we were making 100% bison down gloves. And our first product was fingerless gloves for fly fishing, mostly because of the way it deals with moisture. I mean, if it's raining and snowing, mm-hmm. it's going right off. If you dip your hand in the river, grab a fish. Even if the gloves totally soaked, you shake off the excess, it'll pull that moisture away from your skin and it stays dry. So, wow. yeah, that was, our, that was our first product because it was simple. And then when we started looking into socks, um, socks are a little different from gloves. Gloves are easy. You make them hand-shaped, and you make them as warm as possible. Because if you get too warm in your gloves, you can take them off real easily. When you get into socks, socks take a lot more engineering to make them useful. A, you can't necessarily stop and take your boots off in the middle of the woods if your feet get a little warm. That's not not something that's ever happened. Yeah, hand socks take a lot more abuse and a lot more fiber. So, in order to make them more affordable, we blend with sheep's wool. There is, you know, any number of benefits to good wool. We work with with a number of ranchers in Colorado and and a couple in on the Pacific Northwest for our, for our bison for our sheep's wool, and they raise amazing animals and take good care of them and do nice stuff. So. Blending the fiber was originally somewhat cost-effective, but also sort of kind of mitigating the insulation factor. People don't necessarily need a sock that's great at negative 80. Yeah, no, because then you'll be sweating, and then that moisture can make you colder, actually, right? So That's that's their benefit is they're pulling that sweat away, but you don't – Oh, yeah. You know, and I, I just was challenged by a really interesting guy on Twitter to make some 100% bison down socks. Um, I haven't done it in the past for for a couple of reasons, mostly durability. All of our socks are are made with what we call a base yarn, and that's an all-natural, whether it's a bison and merino, bison and bamboo, or bison and silk. And then on the outside of the sock, we knit a fair bit of nylon for reinforcement, under the heel, under the ball of the foot, toes, kind of thing like that. But there's there are people who have a, a lot of aversion to synthetics, and I can't necessarily necessarily say that I blame them. 
So we are going to start making, we're going to try. I say we're going to start. We're going to experiment and see if we can do it. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really tough. And, you know, I'm a bit of a purist myself, but it's, you know, with some things like with socks, it's, it is really hard. And at the end of the day, and you're saying it's, you know, more on the outside. Yeah, it's, it's a compromise. Um, but if you're 80, 90% wool, that's not, you know, so much better than what everything else, you know, what's in everything else. That's just all polyester nylon typically. So it is, and you know, what I, what I hear from a lot of people is, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll grab a sock, they'll look at the, at the, the back and the label and look at the, the ingredients list on it. And these are done, the, the ingredients are done by weight, not necessarily by volume. So like this mm. sock, this is one of our new kid socks, 30%, 36% merino wool, 30% bison down, 21% nylon, 10% acrylic, 2% spandex, and 2% polyester. Well. So that 60% of the yarn of the sock, which is natural fiber, is about 90% of the actual volume. Bison mm. down is really light. Uh, wool is moderately light. Nylon is really heavy. So even though the only nylon is, see this dark brown on the outside yeah. and this red at the top, that's where the nylon is in the sock. The body of the sock and everything, all the terry loop and everything that touches you is natural fiber. And again, I have sort of mixed feelings about using it. But I figure if you pay 40, 45 bucks for a pair of socks, it better last you forever. And the easiest way to do that is put lots of nylon on the heel and toe where you're not going to wear it. That makes, yeah, again, that makes sense. It's a compromise. It is and... a compromise. And, and I appreciate the enthusiasts and, and the purists. And <laughs> I definitely respect that. I don't know which way. I mean, not knowing exactly which way to go. Yeah. I'm, I'm At the end of the day, I mean, you want to make a good product. So it's it's already a better product, like in all other facets, having the bison down and the sheep merino wool. So people need to just understand that. And yeah, that's that's the tough part. But you're saying you do make 100% bison down gloves, though? Well. Or no? I don't. I mean, that was that was our first product. Now our gloves first are 90, okay. Uh, now our gloves are ninety percent bison. Okay. And because I have a pair of gloves, and they're they're on the lighter side, and they're great for just like an everyday winter glove. Um, but I think they were like maybe sixty percent, or I I don't remember exactly. Well, we, we make we make two different yarn blends for the gloves. We make an, a ninety ten bison and nylon, and a fifty fifty bison and, and wool. That's sort of the 50-50. Okay. You got the 50-50. Those are what we call our advantage gloves. You know, half wool cuts the cost basically in half. Wool is, you know, $9 a pound. Bison's about $300 a pound. Wow. Um, we originally started with a mill, a, what they call a mini mill, a very small mill that's, there's a, a company out of Prince Edward Island that makes mini mills equipment. And it's a very small, low production mill that, you know, makes four pounds of yarn a day. But it can handle very, very fine fibers. Moving to the mill that we've been spinning at for the last 10 years, it's much larger equipment, and it's built for commercially spinning wool in, in the, you know, 100 pounds a day kind of range. But bison fiber is really too short to go through the entire carding mm. process by itself. A wool card is a very large, long machine with lots of rollers and 
um, places where the fiber has to kind of travel through. Adding a little bit of nylon to it helps it travel through the machinery better than anything else. That's one of the challenges in, in processing bison fiber is it's, it's a shorter staple length fiber than just about anything else out there. So trying to make sure that it, it is spun and contained and is not going to wear and pill, that's why we add the nylon. Okay. That was kind of going to be my next question is, yeah, how does the processing compare and can you use that same equipment? So it's like you can, the same equipment as wool, but it seems like you can, but there's a few trade-offs or things you need to do, um, right? And and how many mills are, are even open to doing that? Probably that, not a lot. That's now, and, and one of the big things we've, since we started doing this, is we've been watching the textile industry leave the United States. Are you interested in 100% grass-fed, grass-finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches. Based in Wyoming, Falls Family Ranches is raising high-quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. It's that too, yeah. It's really heartbreaking watching not just the equipment, which has been going overseas since we've started, but the experience. I mean, once you lose these people with this knowledge, you're not able to make things anymore. This Knowing how to do, do a lot of this is, is crucial. The mill that we've spun at forever was in Millbury, Massachusetts, S&D spinning, amazing folks. Fifth generation, five brothers that ran the mill. And besides spinning our yarn, their primary product was really spinning the yarn for Rawlings baseballs. They basically made wow. every baseball since the 1800s. They closed in December. And that was a huge heartbreak to us. But another mill in Wisconsin has bought the equipment and some of the business book from them. And John Dernley, the man who ran the yarn side of S&D literally took their cards apart, which are the big machines that, that process the fiber by hand himself, no books, no pictures, no sketches and diagrams. These machines are 50 yards long. And I cannot tell you how many thousands of bolts and nuts and washers and bearings. And it's just mind blowing. Took it apart, moved it to Wisconsin, put it back together. Did four of them. So That's... yeah, watching the textile industry leave has been really hard. And there are still still some good mills left in the United States, but fewer and fewer every day. And I I've heard that there was one one new textile mill built in California in the last five years, but no other large scale commercial mills have been built. Yeah, it's it's really crazy. And I've got I've gone down this rabbit hole for natural fibers. There's just such little production in the United States. And then you just get into this whole mess. It's like, okay, do you trust, say, organic cotton that's coming from India or China? I don't as highly as if it came from the US. And, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. And I have a few friends that have, have tried to get in this, you know, apparel space, and, and they voice that concern. And, and for me, just just looking to support people who are made in the US, it's it's crazy. Why do you think 
it's just from a cost perspective, it's, it's cheaper to do everything overseas. Do you think it's a labor issue? No one wants to run these mills. It's not worth it. Um, what, what do you think are the main driving factors? Um, some of it is definitely labor. I mean, you know, there's, it is labor intensive trying to do this. Um, cost factor, you know, I, I can produce, if I wanted to make socks in China, it would cost me less to produce a dozen than it does one pair here. So, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's huge. And that's why most companies do go overseas is because it is just significantly cheaper. I don't want to do that. I don't have to do that. And we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're going to do our best to, to help keep mills here in the U.S. busy. Um, we work with a lot of other smaller yarn producers and try and help them find ways to fill in the gaps in the mills in, in their workbook and, and what they can produce. So, I mean, I've got, we got to keep these guys busy or they're going to go away. And that's, that's something we've always, always known and been our, our business just to make sure that we can keep them as busy as we can. Yeah, I think that's the way to do it. And for me, we, we've talked to the Woolshire, um, which I don't know if you've interacted with on, on Twitter. He's making wool wool pillows, organic cotton covers. And he was, you know, talking about that and kind of the mill. I just discovered a, a, a mill in Wyoming that I'm going to contact as well. And it's like, I think, important for people to yeah reach out and, and ask what's going on and, and support this local business. And yeah, maybe... Uh, and what I want to get into more is maybe a little bit of other products like sweaters and jackets or coats, things with bison down. Um, but yeah, if, you know, I, my mom sent it to me, she's like, yeah, it's $160 for a, a wool sweater. But I was like, yeah, but that's 100% raised, made and spun in Wyoming. Like, I'm going to buy that. hundred. Yeah, yeah. So you, you probably knew them. Wonderful people. Good, good producers. Yeah, again, the number of mills in this country you can count on, you know, both hands and two feet, and that's about it. Um, so there, there is not a lot of external stuff. But, yeah, support them if you can, and they make good stuff. I would definitely recommend them highly. Yeah, we'll probably get them on the show as well. And, I mean, that's like two hours from me. So uh, it's really cool. And, and you just like food, like everything, the price has been held artificially low via cheap ingredients, external manufacturing, you know, external labor costs being extremely low. And that's why, you know, you got one ninety nine a pound chicken. That's not real. That doesn't exist. <laughs> that's not possible. It's not possible to have a $5, $10 t-shirt either. Um, unless you have like these massive factories using synthetically grown cotton or really, really cheap plastic. That's a byproduct from, you know, petrochemical industry. And that's being labored by people in Southeast Asia or China for pennies an hour. So if you do the math, it's really simple to understand that these Things that are high quality are worth the value that you pay for them, but you can't be upset about that and you should support it because that's what's going to keep these folks in business and yourself and everybody, you know, and that's trying to do this the right way. And then it's going to last longer. It's going to, you have a higher ROI because you're paying more upfront 
for something that'll last you longer as opposed to paying more over time. Whereas, especially considering inflation and everything, that's probably in your best interest to do that anyway. So yeah, it's, it, <laughs> it, it spans across everything. And it's just crazy when you make this connection in your head that it's not just food, it's, you know, it's literally everything and, and clothes is probably maybe the next biggest one where you can see that kind of holding truth Man, you literally just wrote like our entire fall ad campaign for us you just like, <laughs> seriously that was that was eloquent you know and, and i can tell you real quick how you can do dollar 99 a pound chicken healthy and, and safely <laughs> grow it yourself yeah. problem is most people aren't going to raise a sheep and spin their own sweater but um you're, you're absolutely right in order to do this in a you know i hate to use the word responsible but that's what it is it's mm -hmm. it's caring for our resources so in order to do it right and not just you know use kids in asia and cheap chinese oil you know based stuff it it is going to cost you but your 160 dollars sweater you know made from wyoming grown wool is going to last you the rest of your life it's not going you know if you get a hole in it you darn it you fix it but it will it will last you pretty much forever and buying better and buying a little bit less might be the future of, of things as we do start to realize what what we have to do to, to enjoy the, the better things in life. I think that we've been sort of conditioned that, you know, here, you go buy this product that was made overseas from oil, and this is what you wear when it's out there. Other people who can afford to wear cashmere or bison or whatever, you know, they get the good stuff. I don't like that. I, I want to make stuff that every individual can use. It is still stupidly expensive. I get less than a pound of down per bison. So that's about four pairs, you know, by the time, time we get down to it. Four and, socks, you said? Four pairs of socks? Yeah, four to six pairs of socks, depending on the socks. <laughs> Um, the, the, in the processing, what we have to do is we're, we're shearing the hides. I mean, I want to make it very clear that we are working with animals that have been processed for meat. But we'll shear the hides, and we'll shear it in the area where the fiber is going to be at least three-quarters to an inch long. So that kind of limits it to a, you know, mm. depending on the size of the animal and their hair growth, you know, anything from a, you know, foot-and-a-half spot to maybe a two-and-a-half-foot circle around the heart lungs so area. kind of kind of really only in this nice and nice and thick spot right not yeah. anywhere because down here it's it's a lot more it's a lot shorter down here by the by the rump i guess yeah no the fiber gets yeah, significantly shorter we we do still use that again we want to we don't want to waste anything we've started making a lot of felted products which i can do with shorter fiber that doesn't have to be mm. spun into yarn doesn't have to go through the carding process. So non-wovens, the felted material, we make some insulation batting, we make some garden underlayment, we make some other things from that short fiber. But that that gold, the down, the, the, the really gold stuff, that's very limited. And the, the amount of processing that has to go through, it has we have to separate the guard hair, the coarse, crunchy stuff, from that fine, soft down. So it has to go through a fairly specialized piece of equipment that there's just really not much in the U.S. We're, we're working with a Canadian partner now who has a large de machine. 
and we're working at the mill in Michigan that does it just a beautiful job with a very small machine, but it's slow, it's expensive, and it's a lot of labor. So getting this fiber and making it usable takes a lot of time and money. And I said, my costs on, on the, the down, even doing this essentially ourselves, still come up to be about 300 bucks a pound. That's a lot for hair, I think. Mm -hmm. as, as, we, as we advance, it's, it has come down some. We have improved basically yield and process and gotten better results and more, more usable fiber. That brings the overall cost down. And now it's, we've gotten it to a sustainable level where we can afford to keep doing this, where we can make sure that we can pay these guys who are doing it, um, whether it's the ranchers, the shearers, the mill, the dehairing mill, the spinning mill, or the knitting mill. And everyone along that way needs to make a living wage. And that's, that's how we keep doing this. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, I, I wasn't aware of the intricacies of the process, but of course, yeah, then that adds up. So that's what that's yeah, what it takes. There's a, reason, there's a reason that nobody has has really done this up till now. It's because it's hard and it's expensive and it's a little silly. But it's yeah, that's it. badass though. And there's a reason why it's yeah the best fiber. You know, the most insulative. The you know it's moisture wicking. Uh, to me, it's worth it. It's awesome. But I'm curious how – so some things with the wool. I noticed about your gloves. They're not itchy at all. This is like a common criticism of, of wool. It's bison in general. I mean I, I've slept on my bison high. Like it can get a, like a, a tiny bit itchy. But this is not even – you know, it's a straight-up bison hide. I think it's fine. But this is a common concern of wool. So I'm I'm curious, is bison better for this? Is the processing how you do? I know when you boil wool multiple times, that can help. So what do you say to people that say it's too itchy? Um, well, and, and here's what it really comes down to is the quality of processing. We work with a one Canadian producer who makes really high-end, fancy, nice stuff. Uh, Their company up in Banff called Kivuk with a K. They also process a lot of muscat fiber. Their quality is phenomenally exceptional i mean they have removed every piece of guard hair from the down and when you do that a you get a lesser yield but you get a much softer product the down fiber itself is comparable to good cashmere so getting all of that guard hair out because that guard hair is what's going to be the, the itchy bit if there is anything getting it down to zero makes for something that just total pure luxury and it's absolutely beautiful we have a couple of different standards that we use for for the dehairing, um, we try to get less than four guard hairs per what they call a four-inch pole, where you take the fiber and stretch it out. Sorry, have the fiber right here. You take the, the fiber and you stretch it out over a four-inch square place. You should have less than X number of guard hairs in that. I don't even know. If you can you see a little bit, yeah. See a little bit. There's a little bit in here, but in doing that, we get you know probably twenty to thirty percent more than. Fernando and the Kibiak folks do with their dehairing. Their fiber ends up costing them closer to 800 bucks a pound. So they get a better quality product. It costs a lot more. Um, again, you sort of have to choose a balance of, of how far do you go, I mean, to get to, to perfection. And then in blending it, 
keeping it factor down comes to, to keeping fibers compatible because when you twist them all into your yarn, if you have something that doesn't fit right, you're going to get kind of spikes coming out and that doesn't help. So I'm very cautious to make sure that we blend with things that are going to mate well with the bison that are going to keep mm. smooth and soft. Like our silk blend stuff, we, we do a lot with silk because it's pretty amazing fiber too. Um, it's just like sticking your foot into a cloud. Same with the gloves and hats and scarves done out of it. The bison merino stuff is pretty soft. I have an amazing wool partner in uh, in Oregon, and she does an incredible job at at producing very very soft fine merino wool that mates up nicely with the bison. We actually have to to cut it to match length so that it it fits well with it. We've had to learn a lot of stuff to figure out how to do this and make it comfortable. For the most part, though, everything we do is really soft and, and feels good. My wife is the judge on everything before we put it out to the product, and she is so sensitive, it's not funny. Yeah, well, it's something I noticed with the gloves. is like they're incredible. You don't have any – I'm less sensitive. Um, I can deal with a little bit of itch, but it's something that my friends and family have – have mentioned as we get in this natural fiber rabbit hole, but I'm curious as well. You know, we talked about the wool sweaters. You're doing predominantly, you know, gloves, hats, socks, right? And yeah, is that due to the availability or and the cost mostly? Like those are kind of you're hitting on, you know, something that's reasonable for people to buy. You know, those are the coldest areas usually when you're in the winter. Um, will there ever be a bison down sweater, jacket, coat? You think these are feasible? A bunch of, of quarter zip tops that are, you know, hunting tops, um, kind of a mid-layer quarter zip shirt. Yeah, those those have been exceptional. I think we're almost sold out again. Um, I'm making a vest right now with a, a using a batting made from some of the, the shorter fiber again. So we're going to do like a puffy down style vest that goes over the quarter zip. Uh, but in general, the majority of people that complain about being cold, it's literally head, hands, and feet. Those are the easiest yep. things. You keep you keep your those warm, and you're usually pretty pretty good. There's a lot of good coats and sweaters and jackets out there that would not be six hundred. You know, it just it hasn't made a lot of sense to do it. A, a lot of times we ba we do things based on just what makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. And I, and I think you've hit the nail on the head there. It's just for me, it's interesting. And it's like, if you could go back in time, you know, what were, you know, what were Lewis and Clark and, and, and folks just crossing the plains and, and the natives, like, what were they using? And there was a, it's a lot of bison and a lot of all natural fibers, obviously. So to me, it's like, if you, if you waved a magic wand and could just like, totally change the outdoors industry, you know, jackets, sleeping bags, what have you. Well, how would that, what would you do? How would that look? And to me, it's, it's going back to, to natural fibers, but what does that do to cost and weight, I guess is the other big one for backpacking and, and, and stuff <laughs> like that. But it, it's fascinating to think about because it's like, to me, it's a juxtaposition go nature it's really good for you but here you go we're gonna sleep on plastic live in plastic wear plastic eat out of plastic it's like a joke to be honest 
So I've been trying to do my best uh, to move to more natural things, but it's, it's a challenge, really. Absolutely. And again, you know, it, it's going back to the food. Unless you're doing it yourself, you're relying on somebody else to produce it, somebody else to grow it, somebody else to process it. It's hard. I mean, it just it just is. And every time, you know, from a business standpoint, anytime you can find a cost savings, most people just take it. Sometimes we kind of look for, you know, I hate to say look for the more expensive way, but I want to look for the people that can do the best work, the mm -hmm. best quality, just guaranteed. Since we started doing this, like I said, we, we really launched Buffalo Gold, which was our first brand that was with my father in 2005. We have sold out of our primary products now, you know, 18 years running. Um, and, and we still do. So people have responded well. Uh, you know, if you, if you ever go through and look at the reviews on our stuff, it's just amazing what people do. I get floored every day by just how cool people are and what what they're out doing in this stuff but it works and we've been very blessed that that they have been able to to keep making stuff and, and keep getting it out there so we're just gonna keep doing it so is the so selling out constantly so is it still the biggest bottleneck then is just getting enough supply um absolutely okay yeah i mean <sighs> Truly, I can I can harvest from hides that are processed January through you know mid April maybe, and you talked originally about 160,000 cattle being processed in a day. Last year there were like 54,000 bison processed, and mm -hmm. how many of them were processed in that time frame? You know, less than a yeah. third. Yeah. yeah. So I think we harvested from about 12,000 animals last year. That was a lot. Um, and, you know, as the industry grows, it's going to just keep growing. We have increased every year the harvest and keep making more stuff. So you're, you're probably then at that math, you're probably harvesting the vast majority of animals that are being processed of in that time period in the nation. I, or at least know, a majority, a good chunk. I, we're doing a good chunk. I mean, there's. I would like to do more, I, and we keep trying to figure out ways to to be able to do more with more ranchers. Um, but it's a it's a challenge, and you know, until and again, I don't think we're ever going to get to you know ten thousand bison processed in a day. You know, even if, even if it gets no. to the reaction of the beef industry. But if we do, there going to be a lot more socks. That makes sense. Yeah. Well. That and it makes sense. That's when you know you want to slaughter the animal for peak hide performance, I guess. Or peak yeah, the problem is that we are not we're not enough of a, a factor in the industry to determine when animals are being processed. The meat demand is, and that's oh yeah, yeah, no, and, totally. Not, but it, but if everyone, food. if everyone, because I mean our ranch in in Wyoming, that was you know what we decided is kind of late fall winter is makes the most sense so and a lot of that is because we do want to use the whole animal um including the hide but a lot of yeah a lot of people are just dictated by meat so it's like if you have this change in mindset then maybe yeah maybe more and more folks would consider late fall winter harvest only but then Who's going to fill the grocery stores full of bison in the summer? <laughs> right. Again, you know, and the nice thing is the industry is still small enough that people talk, people work together. 
it's it's one of the neatest things just watching bison ranchers working together and planning and things it's not like yeah, you know, I, I see a lot of the beef industry where it gets quite competitive between you know individual ranchers and producers. Bison ranchers, for the most part, realize that they will never meet the demand, and so as such, they figure mm. that the more people that are doing it, the the bigger the pie grows, and it's better for all of us. So that was something I I noticed for sure at the Bison uh, the NBA Winter Conference was the camaraderie the teamwork the cohesion in the bison industry it's, it's really inspiring actually it's cool and to me that's why it's like wow i'm pretty bullish on on bison because there's a lot of teamwork going on here there's collaboration and it's the way to move forward and that's decentralized that's a community that's powerful and we need to be to go against you know the jbs's and the cargills of the world but no, that truly is. It's really cool, and yeah, I mean, maybe we'll have to chat because we, uh, yeah, we have some bison that we need to that we're going to be slaughtering in, in the winter. We just got kicked out of our our, our one processor has changed ownerships. Classic, but uh, we're, we're figuring that out. So it actually might be even more in the January to March time frame. So I, uh, what, I wish I'd heard. I, I hear that story way too often. It's it's, cr it's crazy, and I'm new in this space too, and it's happened more than once. So yeah, it's wild. But Ron, where where can people buy? This amazing, these amazing bison products. Well, for the most part, easiest way is thebuffalowoolco.com. That's that's our primary website, and that's where we got stuff. There's also a number of bison ranchers around the country who, when they have farm shops, a lot of them carry our products. And we're just about to be able to start putting vending machines on military bases around the around the country. Wow! So, yeah, that's cool. This happens. So. Awesome. And you're on Twitter. Um, yeah, Buffalo Guy Ron. Buffalo Guy Ron. Your, your handle's like at username something, right? <laughs> Is that by yeah, accident or on purpose? <laughs> um, yeah. I've had a couple of different Twitter handles. We had the Buffalo Wolco account. And I don't know what happened, but lost a few of those and signed up one day and just kind of clicked with this at username 29. At, sorry, at username 299-4544. I have no idea what that means. We'll have to we'll have to link that below. But for sure, check out Buffalo right. Wolf. I'm gonna I'm gonna go on the website as well. Winter, yeah, I've been in the summer mindset, but winter's coming back, and I really really love those gloves. And winter is them. coming. And um, yeah, just if and I'll send you the link for Native because it's it's incredible. Charlie and Shauna have done an absolutely incredible job with it. It's really exciting to watch. Awesome. Yeah, that trailer will probably get me fired up. So we'll we'll link that below. And yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Ron. This is a fun conversation. Thank you, I truly appreciate it. This was awesome, brother. All right. All right. Have Take a good care. one, everyone. You thanks too. for tuning in.